When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello and welcome to Whistle Stop, a podcast of campaign curiosities. I'm John Dickerson of Face the Nation. Donald Trump sure seems like a singular, one-of-a-kind fellow, but in 1992, another wealthy billionaire businessman ran for president, railing against Washington incompetence and the stupidity of foreign trade arrangements. His name was Ross Perot, and he received the largest share of the independent vote since 1912 when Teddy Roosevelt ran on the Bull Moose ticket. How similar was H. Ross Perot to Donald J. Trump? We'll find out after this word from our sponsor. Oh, hey, The Great Courses is back. Why? Because learning doesn't stop after we finish school. And if you want to be an autodidact, you need something to put in your auto. So here's the fuel. Scientific secrets for a powerful memory. How conversation works. Art of Public Speaking, Influence, Mastering Life's Most Powerful Skill. Those are four different offerings from The Great Courses. And Great Courses is offering a special limited-time offer to you, Whistle Stop listeners. Order any of these four business and presentation courses for just $9.95. Do so by going to thegreatcourses.com slash whistlestop. That's thegreatcourses.com slash whistlestop. Our whistle stop today is February 20, 1992, and we are in the darkened studios of the Larry King Live Show. Sitting across from the talk show host is a diminutive man with pronounced ears made all the more assertive by the buzz-cut styling of his hair. His name is H. Ross Perot, though he hates the H, and he has come onto the program to launch a trial balloon. Is there any scenario in which you would run for president? Can you give me a scenario in which you'd say, okay, I'm in? Well, number one, I don't want to. I know, but is number there a two, scenario? You know, if you're that serious, you, the people, are that serious, you register me in 50 states. And if you're not willing to organize and do that, then this is all just talk. Wait, wait, wait. Are you I'm saying? I'm saying to the ordinary folks, if you're dead serious, Start then committees I want to see some sweat. I want to see some sweat. Why do I want to see some sweat? I said it earlier. I want you in the ring. A week after the program airs, the CNN Time poll comes out, and Perot is ahead for the first time nationally with 33% to George Bush's 28% to Bill Clinton's 24%. This is the story of the last great independent candidate, H. Ross Perot. It's a story about the love of wealth and success and the desire for a quick solution that comes from outside our broken political system. It's also a crazy state fair carnival ride with Perot leaving the race, re-entering the race, charging the CIA-tinged Republican plots, trying to rob him of his fortune and interrupt his daughter's wedding and kick him out of the race. And it's also a moment to reflect on the differences between Ross Perot and Donald Trump, who is adding excitement and all of those other things to the race in 2016. Heading into the 1992 presidential race, George Herbert Walker Bush looked unbeatable. 
as we discussed in the Clinton 92 New Hampshire whistle-stop episode. The Democrats waiting in the wings for the presidential campaign were all hiding behind the sofa. They didn't want to waste a campaign on an unbeatable incumbent president whose approval rating was at 90 percent. But even in that time of happy success in 1991, Bush's advisors were worried about the economy. In a pre-Christmas memo, Bush's strategist Fred Steeper used a Churchill analogy to underscore the need to get moving on the campaign and focused on the economy. He explained that Sir Winston and the conservatives had been turned out of office less than two months after the victorious end of the battle against Hitler. Bush had had his triumphs, but as Steeper noted, the country has fallen into a recession, he wrote. Leaders are not necessarily reelected for their foreign policy and wartime success, even when that success is monumental. Richard Nixon, still a keen eye on politics, wrote to a confidant, popularity from foreign policy accomplishments is fleeting. If the economy is bad in the fall, he, meaning Bush, will be defeated and the economy will be bad. By the start of 1992, around the time Perot announced, Bush's approval rating was below 50%. That's down from 90% in a year. And it was headed downward. Unemployment was at a nine-year high. The papers were full of stories of downsizing and bankruptcies and the ballooning federal debt. And polls indicated that most voters felt that Bush did not understand the problems of, the, of average Americans. Bush also had no real domestic legislative achievements to run on. He had promised to be the environmental president, and he'd promised to be the education president, and he had been neither. He reneged on his No New Taxes pledge, which had won him a primary challenger on the Republican side. A book written about the Bush presidency by Time Magazine's Michael Duffy and Dan Goodgame summed up Bush's domestic policy this way. The book was called Marching in Place, the Status Quo Presidency of George Bush. Perot then announces in this environment and sets off a flurry of activity to pull him into the race, to convince him to run. Because as we remember from that Larry King appearance, if voters want him to run, he wants to show that they're going to put some effort into it. So 18,000 simultaneous calls came into Perot's phone banks after he appeared on the Phil Donahue show. At another point, 30,000 telephone calls were received in one hour. As the petitioners signed up Perot across the country, he continued to appear on talk shows, and he started to sketch out some of his policies. Mostly his position was, I can do it easily. I can do it simply. I'm from the business world, and solutions just aren't that hard. He talked a great deal about the barn, cleaning out the barn, um, and occasionally looking under the hood. There was a lot of talk of easy solutions to America's problems that could be fixed by a smart man of business. As you can gather already, that is exactly what Donald Trump has been saying. That's just one of the many parallels between the two. But he also started sketching out a little bit his positions on some policy matters. He told Katie Couric that he'd cut Medicare and Social Security for people who didn't need it on Face the Nation. He explained that wealthy Americans should spend more than the average Americans to eliminate the budget deficit. But mostly, he was basically running on this idea of throwing everybody out in Washington and having somebody who could handle business affairs and that would fix government. The Bush forces took him seriously. Three days after Perot announced his spoke, Bush's spokesperson, Marlon Fitzwater, said that supporting Perot would be supporting a pig in a poke and a dangerous personality. Fitzwater called Perot a dangerous monster. 
Soon after that, stories started to appear about Perot's past, including early release from the Navy. The Los Angeles Times weighed in with the fact that a naval officer in command of the fleet Perot served in. Perot, by the way, had gone to the Naval Academy and was an Eagle Scout. Perot had served in the Navy, and this commander in the Los Angeles Times said that he was emotionally maladjusted. Then Marilyn Quayle, the wife of the vice president, said Perot was trying to buy the election and that he was a snake oil salesman. So none of this really hurt Perot in the beginning, much as the attacks on Donald Trump have not hurt him. He was the tribune of the people, Perot was. He was going to go over what the press was saying. And that's an important element of this campaign, is that this was the first, if Donald Trump is the first reality show candidate, Perot was the first talk show candidate. He announced on Larry King, where he found safe harbor to make his pitch without too much tough questioning. This is also, by the way, just to extend this point, this is the campaign in which Bill Clinton played the saxophone and chatted with Arsenio Hall. He talked, Bill Clinton did, remember, to Generation X, as they were calling it at the time, on MTV. Other shows like Phil Donahue and the Oprah Winfrey Show were playing a major part in shaping opinions, and the candidates were trying to appeal to those opinions through that new medium, which was much less filtered than the regular normal news medium. George Bush from the old school had talked about, quote, what he called weird talk shows. But in the end, he had to succumb to this new weird media and appear on Larry King himself. Perot keeps appearing on the talk shows and the phone calls keep coming into the banks where they're collecting signatures to sign him up in all 50 states. Perot realizes that he's let a brush fire here, but his staff in the business world isn't really competent to handle the extraordinary outpouring and also build the kind of organization you need to have as a candidate. In June, Perot hires Ed Rollins and Hamilton Jordan. Hamilton Jordan, as you know from the last uh, episode in the 1980 Democratic race, Hamilton Jordan was the mastermind of Jimmy Carter's rise to the presidency in 1976. And Ed Rollins had been the campaign manager for Ronald Reagan's landslide election in 1984. So in his advisors, Perot had this incredible mix. He had a Republican and a Democrat, both of them real geniuses. And Ed Rollins writes in his book, Bare Knuckles and Back Rooms, about his first meeting with Perot. Perot said to the two of them as they sat in his office, boys, he said, I'm glad to have you here. I'm looking forward to working with you. Let's sit down and get to work. Tell me what you need to do. Even though neither of them had agreed to sign on, Perot basically acted like it was a done deal, and he promised that he would spend whatever money was necessary and that he would do whatever Hamilton Jordan and Ed Rollins wanted him to do. And so for basically four hours, they hashed out the scenario, and Perot said, I'll do it all. He said, you may think this is war, but I've known real men who have been in real wars. They've lost limbs and friends and have been badly wounded. This may be the closest you've come to war, but it's kid stuff compared to the real thing. He said, I've been fired at before. I've been around heroes all my life. I can handle it. So this is the beginning of Perot's campaign. He's gung-ho. He's hired two political professionals. And his temperament, which has been a question in the press a little bit, as it's displayed to these two men, is... Ice water in the veins. He can handle it. He's a business guy. He can run his operation as a presidential candidate with all the efficiency, simplicity, and directedness that has made him a billionaire a couple of times over. But there were problems with this theory. It was not a campaign in the traditional sense. And so when columnist 
conservative columnist Robert Novak went down to visit Perot's headquarters on the 1st of July, not long after he'd hired Rollins and Jordan. He described it as large and vastly more opulent than any campaign office we've seen. It's filled with people who seem to have no useful function and a multiplicity of sophisticated computers that the political pros have no idea how to use. Even today, there is no speechwriter, no advertising team, and no readiness to send a message. With less than four months to go before the election, there is no Perot campaign as normally conceived. So the main job for Hamilton Jordan... And Ed Rollins was trying to convince Perot that he needed to build this campaign that he'd promised them that he was going to let them build. Hamilton Jordan told one of Perot's staffers, he said, Jimmy Carter and I made our mistakes in Iowa, but it was the two of us alone with nobody around driving a Volkswagen. He said, you and Perot are dropped into the Super Bowl in the fourth quarter and you're still trying to get your uniforms on. It turns out that Perot, despite all of his promises in this meeting, was an incredible micromanager. Finally, because... Perot was such a micromanager, it came to a head, and Rollins asked him whether he'd ever heard of Madonna. And Perot said, of course I have. And Rollins, as he writes in his book, said, Ross, she's a multi-million dollar star, but she doesn't schedule her own events. She doesn't rent the bus. She doesn't book the hall and get the band. She doesn't write the script. She hires the people to do all of these things, and she just performs. The message to Perot was, let us handle the details and you concentrate on being the guy who's got this huge brush fire lit in the country. The biggest misunderstanding, though, was, and this is where Hamilton Jordan and Ed Rollins started to get skeptical, had to do with the advertising campaign. Basically, the two men ordered a whole bunch of ads to be made and Perot exploded when he saw what they had created. During one of the sessions where Perot was looking at the commercials they've created, he just burst into a tirade. You've just wasted my money on this crap. I thought you were professionals. He said, why do I want to pay for this when I can go on Larry King? It was such a tongue lashing before that Hamilton Jordan had what Ed Rollins describes as a panic attack. Jordan went to Ed Rollins and said, you worked for a lot of candidates and you might be used to this crap. I've only worked for one, Jimmy Carter. I had a wonderful relationship with Carter. He always treated me like a gentleman and I've never been talked to like this before. So Helen Jordan went to quit and he went to tell Perot that he was going to leave the campaign. And we don't know what happened in that conversation, but according to Ed Rollins, Jordan returned ashen, but did not quit at that period in July because he realized that it would it would make him look bad and he couldn't do it. But there was a fundamental problem, which was that Perot and the people he had hired to run his campaign were totally at odds with how to do so. And that sapped the morale of the two generals leading the operation and everybody below them. Meanwhile, in the outside world, in addition to having no concept of what was required of a presidential campaign, Perot's campaign started to suffer from stories about the candidate and his lack of stability, which was, of course, an echo of what the people involved in the actual campaign were reporting on the inside. Now, part of this Perot is risky storyline was being fed by the Bush forces in late June. They had decided to basically do everything they could to portray Perot as a danger to the presidency. But of course, they had to be careful because Perot was a bad guy to have in a vengeful and vindictive mood. And we've seen this with Donald Trump, those who have been nervous about attacking Trump because of his vast wealth. And Perot had just as much money 
stuffed in his mattress waiting to be spent. In fact, he had it stuffed in many mattresses. But the Bush team was helped in part by the media, which was working hard to tell the Ross Perot story and all of his idiosyncratic ways. And the Bush people slipped along some files full of freshly clipped articles to help them with their work. The New Republic reported that Perot had hired private investigators and had spied on his own children. Then the Washington Post alleged that Perot's private investigators had been investigating George Bush, George Herbert Walker Bush, and his kids as well. It was the assertion that that his private Dix had spied on Bush's sons that put the story over the top, wrote Newsweek in its review of the campaign. If it's true, President Bush said, I don't think that's particularly American. Leave my kids alone, I say. Perot went on, where else, Larry King, to rebut the charges and accused Republicans of dirty tricks against his campaign. While he was on the air, RNC chairman Rich Bond called in to dispute the charges. It was a mess and contributed to what started to be a slip in Perot's poll numbers. Perot then had a series of other foul balls. He went to the NAACP and referred to the audience as you people. He then started to get increasingly paranoid, forcing volunteers to sign loyalty oaths. So among all of this chaos, his support fell to 20%. During this very tough period, Perot asked Ed Rollins, the political consultant, is this ever going to get fun? Rollins said, fun? Yes, said Perot. When I started this thing, it was fun. Campaigns are never fun, Rollins told him. It's like war. It's miserable. Running for office isn't fun. Winning is fun. Perot then asked, what about the presidency? Is that fun? And Rollins said, the only time the presidency is fun is the day you get inaugurated and the day you dedicate your library. If you're going to do what you're setting out to do, it isn't going to be fun. So at this point, Perot's boasts at the beginning of his campaign when he had the two men in his office that this was going to be a cakewalk. It turned out it wasn't going to be a cakewalk. And this mattered, of course, because privately what was happening was his business-oriented effort to run a campaign which in a sense echoed what he said he was going to do for the country, which was to apply his management skills and business techniques to running America, was crumbling inside. And his promises that this would be easy, a piece of cake, which he had also made about the country and solving some of its problems, turned out to be not so true either. So we often debate whether campaigns tell us something about how people will govern. This was an instance in which the campaign was telling us something about the problems that Ross Perot would have when he got into office. And it should be remembered that he had said things like, I can solve the problem of the national debt without working a sweat. It's just that simple. So it turns out running for president just wasn't that simple. With his poll numbers falling and the bad stories mounting, including the bad stories that had been helped by leaks from inside the campaign about how he, Perot was paranoid and refused to spend any money and therefore wasn't really serious about running, Perot dropped out of the race, <laughs> claiming that the Democratic Party had revitalized itself and the cause for which he had originally joined the race, which was to give America a proper way to solve some of its biggest problems, was no longer necessary because you know, the Democrats now had their act together and and so they could take care of America's difficult problems. <laughs> this was about right before the Democratic Convention in New York's Madison Square Garden. He also, in addition to his public rationale, there was polls that came out that showed that Clinton was, had a 20-point lead over Bush. At the beginning of the process, Perot had thought Clinton was such a lightweight that it would just be a, a race between him and Bush. 
The rank and file volunteers who had burned up those phone lines were not happy. At the Boston headquarters, according to Newsweek, a local volunteer leader for Perot fed his petitions into a paper shredder. I feel like I've been stood up by a hooker, the fellow said. In Ventura County, California, campaigners pulled down an eight-foot statue of Perot, draped a noose around its neck, and forklifted it into a dumpster. In East Los Angeles, a 23-year-old campaigner faxed Perot a note. My parents taught me to respect for my elders, but under this situation, if I was in a room with you, I would kick your ass. At the Dallas headquarters, a surviving staffer watched Perot explaining himself on Larry King Live the next night after he had dropped out and shouted at the screen, F you, Ross Perot, why don't you shut up and go home? I should note that one of the contributing factors that I didn't mention right before Ross Perot quit the presidential race, I think it was basically the day before, Ed Rollins, who had counseled Hamilton Jordan not to quit the campaign, bailed on quit the campaign, saying that basically Perot was a megalomaniac, micromanager, who also didn't want to spend any money on his campaign and that he couldn't work with such a person. And that was it for the Ross Perot campaign. He quietly returned to a life in business and was never heard from on the political scene again, which, of course, is not true. On October 1st, Perot re-entered the race as an independent, making his announcement at a Dallas press conference. And whereas he'd been derided for his lack of specificity in the first chapter of his race, he now unleashed upon the world a kind of secondary media strategy, if the first was the benefiting from talk shows. The second was the infomercial. He spent $35 million to buy a half an hour of television on the networks and delivered to us something we really haven't seen since, which was an extraordinary infomercial where with charts and pointers, he explained the various difficulties facing the country and sitting before a bookshelf and looking like he was trying to get us all to invest in a quality timeshare. When we think of the differences between Perot and Trump, this is a crucial one because Trump has said that voters don't really care about policy and detail. And he proved that in his difficult interview with Hugh Hewitt over the discussion about Middle East terrorist groups and leaders. I think the press is more eager to see policy positions than the voters, to be honest, Trump said in Iowa in the summer of 2015. I think voters like me. They understand me. They know I'm going to do the job. I think they trust me. I think they know I'm going to make good deals for them. That's been his view about the need for specificity. Perot had quite the opposite. So he sat down for these protracted infomercials and went item by item about what was happening to America and why it needed to be fixed. He did this a couple of times. His first infomercial aired on October 6th and was viewed by 16.5 million people. He then ran another one on the 9th of October. And this all matters, these dates matter, because the first debate was on the 11th of October. And Perot was there on stage with George Bush and Bill Clinton. And one of the great moments of his outsider campaign was during that debate when Bill Clinton and George Bush both basically said, you need to have some experience to run for president. You can't just like be a business guy who's going to come in and say he's going to turn it all around. That argument had been ratified by the collapse of the initial Perot organization. 
which Hamilton Jordan and Ed Rollins had discovered. But the public didn't know that really at the time. And Perot's answer is one that if Donald Trump doesn't steal it, I'll be floored. Well, they've got a point. I don't have any experience in running up a $4 trillion debt. I don't have any experience in gridlock government where nobody takes responsibility for anything and everybody blames everybody else. I don't have any experience in creating the worst public school system in the industrialized world, the most violent crime-ridden society in the industrialized world, but I do have a lot of experience in getting things done. So if we're at a point in history where we want to stop talking about it and do it, I've got a lot of experience in figuring out how to solve problems, making the solutions work, and then moving on to the next one. I've got a lot of experience in not taking 10 years to solve a 10-minute problem. So if it's time for action, I think I have experience that counts. If there's more time for gridlock and talk and finger pointing, I'm the wrong man. This was a great moment for Perot in the debate, but his campaign never really achieved the lift it had before. Another great, of course, campaign moment in the Perot story was when his vice president, Admiral Stockdale, appeared in the vice presidential debate and gave us what I think is one of the great campaign moments in history, and certainly the greatest campaign moment in vice presidential debate history. It should be noted that Admiral Stockdale was a war hero. He had been a prisoner of war during Vietnam. He had been picked by Perot because of his service and duty to the American people. And also, by the way, it's just too great that his name was James Bond Stockdale. He was one of the most decorated Navy officers, Medal of Honor, So he had this amazing military career, and Perot always had a kind of military cast to him. He had paid for a rescue mission to rescue some employees of his company who were being held hostage. Reverence for the military and American strength was part of what his campaign was all about. And so Stockdale, who originally also was put on the ticket because Perot needed to have a vice president to get on the ballot in some states. He needed to have somebody named. So James Stockdale was an American hero whose extraordinary courage and heroism are what define his life and define his example. But his moment in the debate is one of the great amusing moments in American political history. Who am I? Why am I here? (laughs) I'm not a politician. Everybody knows that. So don't expect me to use the language of the Washington Insider. 37 years in the Navy and only one of them up there in Washington. And now I'm an academic. The pro campaign hit its final difficulty at the end of October on 60 Minutes when Perot made a series of extraordinary and sensational charges. He said that the Republicans had planned to disrupt his daughter's church wedding in August of 1992, which is why he had withdrawn from the race. They had, according to Perot, thought about circulating to the tabloids a phony computer-generated photograph of her in a sexual pose. They had planned to wiretap his office and break into his computerized stock trading program to ruin him financially. It was extraordinary, and he had no proof. And so at this point, given the collapse of his campaign, drops out, then comes back in, this sort of made him more of a laughingstock than an actual candidate. Even though the pro campaign ended in failure and on election day, the largest turnout since 1960, Clinton won the election with 43% of the vote and Bush got 38%, Perot 19%. The other thing to remember about Perot that's different than 
Donald Trump is that Perot wasn't just running on his own sense of himself. He had a platform that included term limits for politicians. It included a balanced budget amendment. He had a notion and an idea for a national referenda, regular national referendas to get feedback from the public on important matters before government. His approach was ego-laden, ego-inspired, but at its heart, the reform agenda that Perot ran on was an attempt to set up new guardrails to keep Congress from destroying further the relationship between the people and their government. It was to repair and keep lawmakers from straying, which was kind of in keeping with the whole, you know, shooting match at the beginning of the government, the notion that lawmakers had failures and would go astray and that they needed government founded around checks and balances to keep them all working for the common good. Now, whether anything Perot had actually offered was constitutional or wise or would achieve the result that he promised it would, there were nevertheless a set of ideas that he was running on about how to create a better government to solve the big question that had given so much energy to his campaign, which is why is our government so bad and why are our leaders so bad? Donald Trump has none of that in his campaign. He's basically arguing that on the force of his personality, Congress will get in line. And that's another key distinction between the campaign that Ross Perot ran and the one that Donald Trump is running today. We'd love to hear what you think of Whistlestop. Send us an email at whistlestop at slate.com. And also leave us a review on the iTunes store. It helps us spread the word. Thanks to our sponsor this week, The Great Courses. Remember, you pick one of these four. Scientific Secrets for a Powerful Memory, How Conversation Works, Art of Public Speaking, Influence, Mastering Life's Most Powerful Skill. Pick one of those for $9.95. It's a special limited time offer. Just go to thegreatcourses.com slash whistlestop. That's thegreatcourses.com slash whistlestop. Our producer is Mike Wolo. Our executive producer is Andy Bowers. Whistlestop is a part of the Panoply Network. Check out our entire roster of podcasts at iTunes.com slash Panoply. Our Whistlestop Crackerjack researcher is Brian Rosenwald, who was not at any way involved in trying to disrupt the Perot daughter's wedding, and it's calumny to suggest that he was. I'll be back in two weeks. Thanks so much for listening. I'm John Dickerson. John Dickerson.